0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 25. Last week, I wrapped up the Egyptian Old Kingdom, having worked through the Sixth Dynasty. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the entire First Intermediate Period, between about the years 2181 and 2055 B.C. So let's get started. So, I've made it from the prehistory of Egypt and through both the pre dynastic period and the Old Kingdom, which brings me to the first intermediate period. Due to the lack of real knowledge about this era, I'm going to cover it a bit differently. Instead of working through the rulers, I'll cover the period in more general detail. Why is this necessary? Well, to be honest, In most cases, we do know the ruler's name and an approximate date of rule, and that's about it. No accomplishments, no notes on trade, not much at all. There are a few rulers that stand out, and I'll touch on them, but in general, this is more about the history of the period in total. As you may recall from the last episode, the Old Kingdom ended with the Sixth Dynasty, it was during the Sixth Dynasty that the power of the Pharaoh gradually weakened in favor of powerful regional governors. No marks. I'll cover what that means in a minute. The office holder and the title were no longer determined by the pharaoh, with the offices becoming hereditary, and this created local dynasties principally independent from the central authority of the monarch. They would erect elaborate tombs, which really isn't too much of a surprise. More surprising is that they frequently raise their own armies. And when political and military power is coupled with unbridled ambition and the lack of central authority, or in our modern world, the rule of law, you often get conflicts between neighbors. And these conflicts would lead to military confrontations, and in many cases, outright war. Some consider these to be civil wars. What a misleading term. Overall, the incidence of internal disorder grew in frequency during the Old Kingdom, and especially during the decades-long reign of Pepe II, probably a 62-year reign. There were a few pharaohs after him, but their tenures were short and not really noteworthy. Except, they couldn't stop the inevitable. The final straw, though, was likely meteorological. In the years between about 2200 and 2150 BC, precipitation in the southern part of the country and in areas even further south dropped dramatically, all of this occurring in the basin that feeds the Nile, and with this came a reduction in the annual flooding the same flooding that the Empire depended on so much for its agriculture. And with the reduction in flooding and the drought, came decades, generations really, of famine and strife. And such general decline marks the end of the Old Kingdom and the beginning of the First Intermediate Period. This period would last from about 2181 BC to 2055 so about 125 years. It's often described as a dark period, similar to the Dark Ages of Western Europe, and by dark, it simply means that the history of the period is not written down. The Old Kingdom temples were looted, and the statues and monuments were smashed or destroyed, all usually associated with acts of political vandalism. Also during the period were several dynasties, Don't let the count fool you. Remember, the general dividing line between dynasties is either a change in the location of the capital, or of the specific ruling family. This period would have both. Anyway, the period includes the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and the first part of the 11th dynasty. And, there wasn't one ruling power, but usually two, sometimes more. One of the ruling powers was centered in Hierarchiopolis in Lower Egypt. The place is now a ruin about 60 miles or 100 kilometers south of Cairo. The other power was usually located at Thebes in Upper Egypt, and the distance between the two, as the falcon flies, is about 250 miles or 400 kilometers. But there was no flying then. The easiest route was via the Nile and that would add another 60 or so miles, or about 100 kilometers. These two kingdoms would eventually come into conflict, with the Theban kings conquering the north, resulting in reunification of Egypt under a single ruler, during the second part of the 11th dynasty, which would mark the end of the First Intermediate Period, and the beginning of the Middle Kingdom. But I'm getting way ahead of myself, First things first. Little is known about the 7th and 8th dynasties. Manetho described the chaos as 70 kings who ruled for 70 days. This was most likely an exaggeration, used as a tool to prove a point. And that point was the general disorganization of the government. But there may have been a threat of truth in this thought. You see, there is a theory that the 7th dynasty was an oligarchy made up of the leftover powerful officials from the 6th dynasty. This government would have been based in Memphis. Remember in the last episode when I covered how the pharaohs slowly lost power to regional rulers, administrative officials, and priests? Many of whom who passed their title and authority down to their sons? Well, Manetho's theory is the result of that practice. There are a few somewhat noteworthy, somewhat unknown rulers from the period. The first is a man thought to be part of either the 7th or 8th dynasty, and during the transition from the Old Kingdom to the 1st Intermediate period. His name was Manchorea, and we know this from the Abydos king list. He may have appeared on the Turin list, but the portion of that list where his name would have been is missing. I know, Shocking. There is another possible listing of his name on the tomb of a later queen, but the actual inscription is damaged. In the British Museum is a steatite cylinder seal that can be interpreted as the good god, lord of the two lands, Mankarier, But the seal dates to the 26th dynasty, about 1700 years after Mankarier's potential reign. So, it may have been based more on legend than fact. It also may be a reference to the more well-known pharaoh Mekarir, the builder of the Third Pyramid at Giza. And please keep one thing in mind, I'm covering him for two reasons. First, he was potentially part of the transition between periods. And second, because he is one of the better attested to rulers of this period. And the only real criteria to be better attested to is to have your name on one somewhat reliable source and a couple of far less reliable sources. And that's one of the greatest historical problems with the period. Anyway, after Mancarior was Nefricare II. Probably. Well, maybe. His name is also found on the Abadaios king list and he would be in a missing section of the Turin list. There are scarabs that have been attributed to him, as well as a green quartz cylinder, probably from Syria, most likely dating to the Eighth Dynasty. His name may be part of some graffiti at the Wadai Hammamat, and that's how deep you must search to find any sort of attestation. Graffiti. And no, it wasn't tagged with spray paint, Think of it as inscribed graffiti, but the graffiti does date to the period, so that adds some credibility. After him was Nefecar III. He, too, is on the Abidaius list, but he's not on the Turin list, which of course doesn't mean he was never on that list, just that his piece could be missing. And, unlike most, his name is found elsewhere first on the false door at Queen A.K. Hessempepis II's tomb. It is also inscribed on her sarcophagus. The current thinking is that she was Nefekir III's mother. A stele of hers reads that Nefekir III began the construction of a pyramid, possibly at Saqqara. But the actual location of the pyramid is unknown, likely because no significant construction ever took place, or... It could have been covered by the shifting desert sands and is waiting to be uncovered. The name of along with the name of Nikar, both of the 8th dynasty, were found on the gold plaque. A plaque that is currently located in the British Museum. But many, maybe most, researchers consider the plaque to be a fake artifact, a forgery. It probably would be better to talk about the generally understood history of the period. The Eighth Dynasty rulers, while attempting to gain power, would claim to be the rightful heirs to the Sixth Dynasty of the Old Kingdom. They too would rule from Memphis, but, in the end, very little is known about the Eighth Dynasty. This is a direct result of the insufficient textual or architectural evidence from the period that has survived. That's not to say that the archaeological record is completely silent for the other leaders. There is a small pyramid, thought to have been constructed by King Ibi from the 8th dynasty, located at Saqqara. But in the end, many of the leaders from the period only appear on one king list and not any other. It truly is a dark age. Also of the 8th dynasty was Kakar Ibi, whose name can be found on the Abadiah's king list. And unlike many of the other rulers from the period, he is probably on the Turin list too, where it indicates he ruled for just over two years. And, he has one other attestation advantage over the other rulers of the same era. He actually has a pyramid, located at Saqqara, possibly the last one to be constructed at this site. It's relatively small, and was excavated in the 20th century, and the excavation revealed something curious. It may have been constructed for a queen of the old kingdom, the wife of Pepe II, and Ibi repurposed it for his own use, the remaining structure, and it's not much, as most of the stones were carted away over the subsequent millennia. But the structure does have a few inscriptions, One calls him the chief of the Libyans. No one has quite figured out what that means, and it may not be literal, which would only add to the confusion. His tomb also contains what is believed to be the last of the pyramid text. Another 8th dynasty ruler is Nefer Karor, who ruled for about two years. He's probably the best attested to to rule from the period, which isn't saying much. He's on the Abadias list. While his name is not on the Turin list, the length of his reign may be there. But those are not the editations I'm referring to. Several of his decrees, carved in stone, have been uncovered. Eight decrees, to be exact. But the full decrees haven't been uncovered. Instead, fragments of the stone carvings have survived. And, like Moses and the commandments proved, Stone tablets are relatively fragile. Think of how history would have been different had Moses thrown down papyrus. Anyway, seven out of the eight decrees were issued on the same day, and that was the first year of his reign, maybe even on the day he ascended to the throne. That year, curiously, is referred to on the tablet as the year of the uniting of the two lands. In the decrees, he bestows titles to his eldest daughter and gives her a bodyguard. He also orders the construction of a sacred statue for a god called Two Powers, which may represent their god Horus' men. The second and best preserved decree appoints Idi, who was possibly his grandson, to the post of governor of Upper Egypt, ruling over the seven southernmost nomes. The third and fourth decrees are partially preserved on a single fragment. They record Neferkara giving Idi's brother a post in the Temple of Men. The remaining decrees concern the appointment of mortuary priests to the chapels in Nibet and Shimei, as well as ordering inventories at the Temple of Men. Finally, Neferkara's name was found on the wall in his vizier, who was also his son-in-law, Anyway, it was found on the wall of his vizier's tomb. While the 7th and 8th dynasties ruled from Memphis, the people who would become the 9th dynasty were slowly increasing their power at Hierarchiopolis, located in Lower Egypt. It's thought that these people would defeat the Memphite rulers to create the 9th dynasty. But like most things from the era, there is practically no archaeological evidence that proves the theory out their descendants would become the kings of the 9th and 10th dynasties, about 19 rulers in total. The first ruler of the 9th dynasty was named either Akthos or Akhtoi, maybe. And he was described by Manetho as an evil and violent ruler. He was depicted as a king who caused much harm to the inhabitants of Egypt, was potentially mentally ill, and was eventually killed by a crocodile. All or part of that story may be completely made up, and at least he wasn't depicted as riding on the back of a crocodile. He is potentially listed under a different name on the Turing King list. But then again, some modern researchers think that he may have ruled during the Tenth Dynasty. Who knows? He can be found on a few uncovered artifacts, including a copper basket from a tomb near Abadias. This basket is now located at the Louvre. There were three successive rulers named Kiti, but little is known about their reigns, but they may have brought a bit of order to the Delta region. There were also lesser rulers, based around the city of Asut. The location is key, as it's about halfway between Memphis and Thebes. And when you consider that the country was ruled by territorial leaders, this makes sense. Essentially, different territories along the all-important Nile River. These kings were also military leaders, and they maintained alliances with Hierarchyathletan rulers. This can be seen in some of the few surviving inscriptions, found on the Azuntian leaders' tombs. These inscriptions offer some insight into the political, economic, and military realities of their day. They describe the Azuntian leaders digging canals, reducing taxes, gathering bountiful harvests, increasing the size of the cattle herds, and maintaining an army and fleet of boats – all the hallmarks of a successful dictator. And, in the broader political sense, it seems that Asut acted as a mediator between the northern and southern rulers. But, that isn't to say they didn't take sides. Their military apparently would absorb attacks from the Theban kings. And, if you were from Memphis, that surely worked to your advantage. Upper Egypt was controlled by warlords, and the best known of these military leaders was Anctafi. And why do we know the most about him? Well, we benefit from the discovery of his tomb. It was uncovered in 1928 at a location about 19 miles or 30 kilometers south of Luxor. Apparently, he was the provincial governor of the Nome based in Hierarchiopolis. And I've said it a few times, so I might as well cover it. Nome. That's a term worthy of a short sidebar. A gnome was a territorial division in ancient Egypt. The practice of dividing the land into these smaller territories began in the pre-dynastic era, with the rise of city-states, and continued through the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt with Minis. It really took off during the Old Kingdom, due to the increasing control of the pharaoh and the rise of the administrative state. Each gnome was ruled by a person known as a nomarch. I've been attempting to avoid using this term, but it's become practically unavoidable. And the word is actually French, drawing from the Greek word for district, it left over from the later, but still BC portion of Egyptian history, when they were ruled by the Greeks. The Egyptians referred to the districts as sapats, not that it makes a terrible difference for this short segment. The number of Gnomes changed through the various periods of the history of ancient Egypt, but they did manage to stick around for close to 3,000 years, through all of the kingdoms and most of the dynasties, the rule of the Greeks followed by the Romans. Throughout this time, the territories and divisions of the individual Gnomes remained unusually stable. Under the system that prevailed for most of the kingdoms and dynasties, the country was divided into 42 gnomes, and that's nome without a G, like the town in Alaska. Lower Egypt, a territory from the Old Kingdom capital Memphis to the Mediterranean Sea, had 20 gnomes. I'll skip covering the individual ones in the proposed ordering system. Upper Egypt was divided into 22 gnomes, and from the word nome we get the word gnomarch. A monarch for a gnome, a nomarch. Like I've alluded to, well, actually covered, just without the title. The position of nomarch was first appointed by the Pharaoh, but became hereditary. Before the fall of the old kingdom, when the dynasties were more powerful, and the central government stronger, nomarchs were essentially the king's appointed governors and served to carry out his will. But, as the dynasties weakened, power became less centralized, and with this came both internal and external strife. Individual gnomes filled the power vacuum with nomarchs growing in power, asserting this power and establishing hereditary lines of succession. And with that, conflict, read civil wars, grew in frequency between these different territorial nomarchs, It was such a great time to be a power-hungry regional ruler with access to resources and the mostly predictable flooding of the Nile. Not so nice for the conscripted and peasantry. And with that short sidebar, back to the history. Inktafi was a governor, but then expanded his territory to the south by conquering a second Nome that had its capital at Edfu. After this expansion, he then set his sights on Thebes. This proved unsuccessful for a peculiar reason. When he got there, the Thebians refused to come out and fight. Go figure. His tomb contains many inscriptions that essentially forms an autobiography. The story told, true or not, is of a leader that rescued his people from famine. It recounts how he gave bread to the hungry and did not allow anyone to die. The veracity of the claim is debated, as similar writings can be found in many tombs. Overall, there is a conclusion that has the support of the majority of researchers, and that is that he was the ruler of the region, and that there was no higher authority he owed allegiance to. And, this serves as proof that the unity of the entirety of Egypt was gone. Researchers now believe that the Hierarchyopolitan kingdom would lead to the 11th dynasty, which would begat the Middle Kingdom, all of this happening around Thebes. The line of kings is thought to have descended from one known as either Inteph or Inoeteph, who began as nomarch of Thebes. You know, Thebes, the people who wouldn't come out and fight. He is believed to have organized Upper Egypt into an independent ruling body in the south, but apparently he personally did not attempt to claim the title of king. Later, and descended from his line, was Intef III. He would begin to expand the territory towards the north, eventually capturing Abdaios and in doing so, expanding into Middle Egypt, finally facing the Hierarchiopolan rulers all towards the end of the first intermediate period and part of the 11th dynasty. In fact, it was the first three rulers of the 11th dynasty, all named Intef, the first, second, and third, quite original, who would be the last rulers of the intermediate period, setting the stage for the forthcoming middle kingdom. They would be succeeded by a line of kings, all named Mentuhotep, The second with this name, formerly, well, Mentuotep II, would defeat the Hiroachiopolan kings sometime around 2033 BC. In doing so, he would unify the country while continuing the 11th dynasty and bring Egypt into the Middle Kingdom. In the north, the Hiroachiopolan kings built very little. Well, to be accurate, they built few structures that have survived the millennia. There is the mention of a single pyramid, that of King Mirakar, who ruled between about 2065 and 2045 BC. It's thought to be in Saqqara, but to date, it too has not been found. The uncovered private tombs of the era are tiny and completely unremarkable, especially when compared to those of the Old Kingdom. But then again, modern tombs are tiny in comparison even that of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. They don't compare either. But you have to remember, though, that the role and purpose of such buildings has changed completely. The Egyptian tombs of the era do reveal a few secrets, mostly through the art and inscriptions found on them. They tend to consist of reliefs with scenes of servants making provisions for the deceased as well as the traditional offering scenes which are similar to Old Kingdom tombs, especially those found in the vicinity of Memphis. And, some traditions remained. Their coffins tended to be wooden and rectangular, and the so-called coffin text still adorned the interiors of the tombs, and were still thought to provide spells and maps for the deceased to use in the afterlife. Meanwhile, the Theban kings of the early 11th dynasty constructed rock-cut tombs, generally referred to as South tombs, on the west bank of the Nile. These were essentially a large courtyard with a rock-cut colonnade on the far wall. Rooms were then carved into the walls facing the central courtyard where the deceased were buried, allowing for multiple burials in one tomb. In our western, modern world, we tend to think of mausoleums designed in this manner. The burial chambers tended to be unadorned with decorations, which may have resulted from a loss of a skilled trade, that of a rock carver. And remember, all of this, everything from this episode, is thought to have occurred prior to Abram arriving in Egypt, which is a good thought and a good place to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the Middle Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.